Despite the conflict and turmoil that persists in our world, there are people who are working for peace. The compassion brings us more inner strength, more self-confidence in politics or economy or education or anything. Stay tuned for an hour with people who, in their own unique ways, are giving the rest of us inspiration and ideas about how to bring more peace into our lives. You know, we come up here and pray for peace, and it hasn't worked yet, but we're hopeful. (laughs) And to have 10,000 people come together and to try and manifest that kind of intention, I think it's pretty powerful. We'll also spotlight some moments and characters from our past who challenged us then and still now to think more about the possibilities for peace. It really is economical to have peace, Mr. Nixon, and you'd be really popular if you did. What should he do? He should just declare peace. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, highlights from the Peace Talks radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On one recent program, we met Kim Rosen, author of the book Saved by a Poem, who says her own life has been steadied and a sense of inner peace restored many times by referencing poetry. In 2008, she was about to publish a book about it called Saved by a Poem, when circumstances challenged her to test the power of poetry anew. I had just um, chosen to take the money from my, I sold my little house in upstate New York and I put the money into stocks and I saw the stocks plummeting and impulsively um, I sold all my stocks and put them into a very, very stable local fund named Starlight. I liked the name. And um, I wrote the biggest check I've ever written And two months later, without having received any dividends, I got a call in my voicemail that Bernard Madoff had been arrested and that I had lost everything because the fund was completely invested with Madoff. And I sat down on the floor. I had no idea what to do. The phone is blaring its, you know, alarm, phone off the hook alarm. And over the alarm comes this poem that I didn't even know that I knew. It was a poem that a student of mine had brought into a workshop maybe a couple of years earlier, and um, it's a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shehab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go before you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you know the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel to where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead at the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness, as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing inside. You must wake up with sorrow. You must talk to it until your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. 
And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to purchase bread and mail letters. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. What that poem did for me, really it became my prayer. I I went to sleep with it. I woke up with it. I read it several times a day. I began to experience on a very profound level how my affluence had separated me from most of humanity. I always thought that the poem was about how if you get your heart broken, kindness comes out of you. I hope that that's happened, I must say. But what I cannot deny has happened is that I broke open and kindness has been flooding into me. And it never occurred to me that's what the poem was talking about. Friends offered me money. People offered me places to live. My hairdresser cut her rates. My landlord lowered my rent. Um, you know, people who people would say to me, I've wanted to give to you for so many years, but you've been so in control and you've been so on top of it in your life and you're always the giver. I'm so grateful to have a chance to give to you now. Kim Rosen, author of the book Saved by a Poem, finding personal peace and inspiring peacemaking behavior in others through her encounters with poetry. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls, the producer of Peace Talks Radio, a public radio series which, in each episode, spotlights peacemakers throughout history and around the world today. Through their stories, we try to glean some strategies that we can all apply to reducing conflict in our daily lives. On this program, some excerpts from recent programs in the series, including our marking in 2009 of the 40th anniversary of perhaps the most recognizable peace anthem of the late 20th and early 21st century. John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance. The recording of the song Give Peace a Chance culminated another week-long bed-in for peace that John and Yoko staged in Montreal, Canada. They had hoped to get into the U.S. for their event, but were having legal troubles getting visas, so they went as close as they could across the northern border. From May 26th to June 2nd, the pair camped out in their pajamas, in their bed, in the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, welcoming in dozens of reporters and a few celebrities to have conversations with them, mostly all about peace. This was the week that was the centerpiece of the film John and Yoko Give Peace a Song, co-produced by Paul McGrath, and here, Alan Lysett. Yeah, we listened to virtually uh, all of the interviews, and we were both, uh, I I speak for myself, I was really impressed with his knowledge, and uh, he he didn't have just a a superficial view of, of peace. I mean, he really had thought it through. Nobody's ever given peace a complete chance. Gandhi tried it, Martin Luther King tried it, but they were shot. We thought about this for months. This is the best 
possible most functional and effective way of promoting and protesting against violence that our minds combined yes. could think of. Well, what would you say to people okay. like Richard Nixon? I'd say do something him? positive about it and uh, it really is economical to have peace, Mr. Nixon, and you'd be really popular if you did. What should he do? He should just declare peace. 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 We say violence begets violence, and the establishment are getting more violent, and they're getting violence back, but you know, they're losing a lot. They're losing. Peace, 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 peace. Peace in your mind, peace on earth, peace at work, peace at home, peace in the world. When did the notion of recording Give Peace a Chance come in during the week in your research? Was that in the cards all along? I would guess uh, somewhere midweek, around Wednesday, Thursday, he started to get, uh, he started to craft the lyrics. You could see him off in the corner of the room strumming a guitar. And then around Friday, I think he asked Eric Taylor to see if Eric can, can arrange to get some sort of mobile recording into the room. I think that was his intention all along. We do need discipline. These people need air and space around them. I keep this rule fairly clear. As it develops, we may bring people forward to join in. It's as free as it can be, right? They had a lot of setting up to do to make this god-awful hotel room sound like a decent uh, recording environment, and that was the toughest part of the whole thing. But I think it was, you know, without wanting to sound too mystical about it, I think, as Paul says, it was about midweek. They started to sense that there was a real vibe happening in this... uh, in this setting, and uh, they wanted to capture it. I'm hoping at least 200 years from now, people will still be singing it then. It'd be nice if we didn't have to sing it 200 years from now. Yes. (laughs) Two, one, two, three, four. Yoko Ono, yes. what do you remember most about how Give Peace a Chance came together in 1969 in Montreal? Well, it was something that we decided to do, and it was very, very, very enjoyable in a way. I think it's good to do something uh, that is so serious uh, with joy and fun. We had great fun doing it, and I think that's the secret of it. Uh, it, it does uh, sound like that in the song, that uh, we were sort of up. Hmm. Was there much a forethought or conversation between you and John that it might in fact become an anthem for rallies or for generations to come? There was an intention of that. Of course, all songs that we make, uh, and Joe makes, uh, especially if it's to do with uh, something political, um, he knows exactly what should be done to make it sort of simple so that people can uh, repeat it or whatever. Uh, We didn't think about the fact that it might really spread. And that's a very interesting thing about it. Uh, uh, the other um, song, Imagine, too. One thing I love about these film clips, where I get to see more of these interviews you gave during the bed-ins, is particularly you challenged a couple of times there would be journalists or someone would come in and, and start blaming the government or the establishment. And you 
very pointedly turn to them and say, no, it's you, it's us, it's our responsibility. The whole world would be in war if we don't start to change people's minds. That's the only way we can get our arms. don't stop the monster that's bringing the war about. Monster? We are the monster. monster. You are the monster, okay? You're the monster who is lazy and who didn't think about the fact that you are it. We are all responsible. All of us uh, live in this society and each one of us will have to do our best to make this society uh, a better place to live for ourselves. I mean, just for ourselves even, but for our children as well and for the world. Just as Yoko Ono has tried to merge elements of her avant-garde art with the message of peace, Artist Lily Yeh brought her skill at creating colorful landscaped community parks forward, first to a troubled neighborhood in North Philadelphia, then to communities and villages around the world. As the members of these communities banded together in a common effort to beautify their shared spaces, a sense of place and a sense of peace replaced apathy, neglect, and decay. Lily Yeh talked with our Carol Boss. In art, you can create a new space where everyone with imagination, with talent, wanting to give, can walk into this new space of democracy and equality, and we can give and offer what we have. But there's something to me is more profound in reward, is really when you're talking, working with people, when people have no pretense, no goal to gain, but people just bear their hearts and and no alternative motives and working together to a common goal, that transform participants. Brenda Toller is a staff member for the nonprofit organization that Lillier started, which came to be known as The Village for short. Did you actually feel and sense that your life and the life of your family um, actually changed? Yeah. Ms. Lily changed my family, my immediate family with my husband and my children, brought us close together. Because my son, he talks about it all the time. Like, he'll come back to the village and be like, talking to the children that's there, like, the village has changed my life. And a little Chinese lady came into a black community and changed people's lives. And you can't get everybody, but the few that you get, that's something special. Again, Lily Ye talking with Carol Boss. I feel, you know, connecting to bring our emotion, to bring meaning, and to bring uh, our heart to our work is essential because we're getting more and more into an urban society with high-rise buildings, fast transportation, and uh, building, it's concrete everywhere. There is a deep sense of alienation. You know, the, the family's structure breaking down. We are not in the old community where the parents and and the families can give us strength. Now, how do we relate to each other? So um, how do you become um, personalized in the new urban, fast-growing society? And I feel that we have to connect to the people next to you. We have to open our heart. We have to bring, make our life meaningful. And then we have to connect with the, the, our space and the thing we do um, with meaning and with our heart. In 2004, at an international conference, you met John Bosco Musana, regional coordinator of the Red Cross in Jacini, 
Rwanda, and this was 10 years after the genocide there. What did Mr. Musani ask of you? When I went there, he took me to see two sites. One side is the mass grave um, of uh, mass grave of people's bones. They were just uh, put together and uh, placed under a um, very rough concrete caskets um, with a corrugated, you know, kind of rusty corrugated um, roof. Um, then he also took me to see a village of 100 mostly female genocide survivors. And so I asked him which one needs help more. He just said, really, both needs help. I call it the Rwanda Healing Project. When I saw the, the mass grave the first time, my heart sank. I said, there's no healing when the victims um, every day see their loved ones being buried in such a ra- kind of raggedy place. And I said, we must bring beauty to honor the dead. And so I went home um, and I did the little sketch. They liked it. So I developed into a beautiful drawing, drawing of a beautiful sight. And to see that, that beauty, they feel, yes, now their dead ones are buried in a beautiful place. Their soul can rest, and so can the victims. Their soul can rest. When they feel loved by people they have never seen from America, whose hearts are connected to them, and they see this beautiful monument, and they feel there's hope in the future, and then they begin to feel peace inside. I have two models. They're both by um, Mother Teresa. One is um, make my heart broken so completely that the whole world falls in. So sometimes in adversity, um, maybe that's the beginning of transformation and love. And the other one is that also from Mother Teresa, we can never do great things, but we can do small things with great love. That's the beginning of taking action, however small, but with compassion, with concern for others. I think that's maybe the beginning of um, transforming our environment, society, and the planet. Lily Ye, whose organization Barefoot Artists has a mission to bring the transformative power of art to the most impoverished communities in the world. Just ahead, the peace message in the 1960s TV series Star Trek and the peace message in the life of the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. More after this break.
This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring highlights from recent episodes in the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find the full programs from which these excerpts were drawn in the 2009 season on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2003 and make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep the program alive. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Sometimes on our show, we like to shine a light on some of the surprising places where notions about peace might be on display. Like on the 1960s science fiction television series Star Trek, which started a decades-long entertainment phenomenon that continues to this day. In the original series, actors William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, playing Captain Kirk, First Officer Spock, and ship's doctor Leonard McCoy, were often leading the Starship Enterprise into confrontations that drew the characters into pretty sophisticated debates about the nature of war and peace. Do I have to say it? It's not bad enough there's already one serpent in Eden teaching one side about gunpowder. You're going to make sure they all know about it. Exactly. Each side receives the same knowledge and the same type of firearm. Have you gone out of your mind? Yes, maybe you have. Bones, the normal development of this planet was a status quo between the hill people and the villagers. The Klingons changed that with the flintlocks. If this planet is to develop in the way it should, we must equalize both sides again. Jim, that means you're condemning this whole planet to a war that may never end. It could go on for year after year, massacre after massacre. All right, Doctor. All right, all right, say I'm wrong, say I'm drunk. What is your sober, sensible solution to all this? I don't have a solution, but furnishing them firearms is certainly not the answer. Our guest on this episode of Peace Talks Radio was David Gerald who wrote some Star Trek scripts and the book The World of Star Trek. In this particular episode, Kirk is justifying uh, the Vietnam War. And, you know, remember that's 1966, 1967. Kirk is justifying the Vietnam War by saying that we need to preserve the balance of power. He recognizes that it's an ugly argument, but there is no other argument. There is no other solution. He says so. Um, it raises issues of responsibility, the responsibilities of a superpower. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I, I think that a superpower should use its power to stop wars, not foment them, and certainly not to create them. In that episode, for me, Star Trek is finally asking the question, how do we use our power to stop wars? And the answer Kirk comes up with, to my mind, is is still the wrong answer, but it's the only answer he knows. David, I know most fans know this, but let's talk about other plot points reflecting the 1960s geopolitical scene. Was the rivalry between the Klingons and the Federation of Planets meant to mirror the Soviet Union and the United States in the mid-60s? Um, absolutely. And in fact, um, I mean, the Cold War was a very, very... Uh, intense uh, uh, national paranoia. Uh, You couldn't escape it. It was everywhere. While we never said, oh, the Klingons represent the Russians in the Cold War, we knew that the Klingons were our Cold War, particularly after the the first episode with them, which was Errand of Mercy, and ends with a peace treaty. Uh, And that's another episode where Kirk confronts the arrogance of, of the balance of power that's what we had with the Russians. 
in the 60s was a policy called Mutual Assured Destruction, MAD for short, and a perfect acronym, MAD, um, because the idea was uh, you destroy us, we destroy you, and the whole world is dead. Uh, but somehow it kept the Cold War from erupting into a hot war. Another interesting episode that mused on the horrors of war and how it ought to spur peacemaking was called A Taste of Armageddon. Kirk's orders are to establish diplomatic relations with a planet, and when they beam down to this planet, they learn that it has been in a computerized war for over 500 years with a nearby planet. Strategic hits are theorized by the computers from both planets. Casualties are calculated, and the victims have 24 hours to report to a disintegration station so that they may be killed. The planet governments see this solution as tidy because it preserves the civilization despite the cost in lives. Again, in this episode, Kirk and his crew don't like the sound of that. They disregard the Prime Directive and destroy the one planet's computer, leading to this final scene. you realize what you have done? Yes, I do. I've given you back the horrors of war. The Vendikins will now assume that you've broken your agreement and that you're preparing to wage real war with real weapons. They'll want to do the same. Only the next attack they launch will do a lot more than just count up numbers on a computer. They'll destroy your cities, devastate your planet. You, of course, will want to retaliate. If I were you, I'd start making bombs. Yes, Councilman, you have a real war on your hands. You can either wage it with real weapons, or you might consider an alternative. Put an end to it. Make peace. There can be no peace. Don't you see? We've admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. It's instinctive. It's the same with you. All right. It's instinctive. The instinct can be fought. We're human beings with the blood of a million savage years on our hands. But we can stop it. We can admit that we're killers, but we're not going to kill today. That's all it takes. Knowing that we're not going to kill today. Contact Vendikar. I think you'll find that they're just as terrified, appalled, horrified as you are. That they'll do anything to avoid the alternative I've given you. Peace or utter destruction. It's up to you. There may be a chance. We have a direct channel with Vendikar's high council. It hasn't been used in centuries. And it's long overdue. Shall we go? David Gerald, you write that this Taste of Armageddon episode was one of the better ones, you thought. What do you like about this in the context of our conversation today? Well, what I like about A Taste of Armageddon is that great speech that Kirk gives at the end, in which I have often said, I mean, it's become a personal mantra, okay, yes, I'm descended from killer apes, but today I'm not going to kill. I think what that speech represents is the rationality of of a self-aware, self-actualized being taking responsibility for the evolutionary um, heritage. Uh, you know, we all have these little reptilian corte- cortexes at the base of our skull that, you know, we just, you know, our hands curl up into fists and we just want to punch that person in the face for being, 
such a terrible person in our judgment. But Kirk is saying, no, we're, we don't do that because we respect rationality. We respect, we understand that people have different views, different opinions, and it's time that we learn to respect each other and, and uh, uh, listen to each other and learn from each other and that we don't have to fight. Uh, and he says it all in two sentences, and I think that the script writing in that was probably, uh, you know, I don't know who wrote that exact speech, but whoever it was, I, I you know, that was the reason they were put here on this earth. Billions of people have seen that episode now and have heard that line, and, and if it has impacted even a small percentage of them, that's still millions and millions of people who think, and today I'm not going to kill. This is good news. <laughs> David Gerald, author of The World of Star Trek. To mark the 50th anniversary of the Dalai Lama's exile from his native Tibet, fleeing the brutal advance of the Chinese into his homeland in 1959, Peace Talks Radio devoted an episode to recounting the remarkable story of this Buddhist monk, Tenzin Yatsu, the 14th Dalai Lama. Our Suzanne Kreider talked with two of his close associates, Professor Robert Thurman of Columbia University and journalist Pico Iyer, and we heard clips from talks and interviews given by the Dalai Lama, like this exchange with Charlie Rose on PBS. How do we have compassion in a world that is so brutal? Mm-hmm. I think compassion, uh, we should not look just comp- word compassion just, just that way. I think the compassion is important because more compassionate mental attitude there you can see everything more better, more clearly. Because compassion <laughs> brings us some kind of calm mind. Yeah. And through calm mind, you can see the picture more, uh, more clearly. Much sort of emotion, such as uh, hatred, anger, attachment, then uh, your... N- Normal mind or calm mind, uh, not there, no longer there. Too much sort of hate, too much anger, or too much attachment. So uh, these uh, affected emotion uh, then you see, become obstacle to see the reality. So therefore, the compassion bring us a certain deeper sort of. Uh, value, uh, firstly, open our mind, and that brings more inner strength, more self-confidence, and that brings more calm mind. Through that way, whether whether in politics or economy or education or anything. I think he's a major world leader of peace. He speaks about how the 21st century war is obsolete and conflict should be resolved through dialogue. And you can even talk to your enemies, and people will not necessarily stay your enemy if you figure out what's their problem and what can you do about it other than a fight with them. I think that um, the different world leaders who are making wars and are being domineering and are seeking to conquer things are not succeeding, and they're causing more and more devastation and trouble and, and violence and so on. So people are kind of sick of that worldwide. And uh, someone like the Dalai Lama is someone who offers a different perspective 
and he does it very articulately and very intelligently. So the fact that he himself is Buddhist, I think, is less important than the fact that he stands for peace. You know, he speaks for peace in a universal way. And also he, in his ethical prescriptions and arguments and his his um, advocacy of compassion, he purposely does dissociate himself from this being because of a specific set of religious beliefs. He does it because of the basic human nature that he be- argues is our nature and also the practicality and the impracticality, rather, of violence and so forth today. So for all these reasons, I think he draws these very, very large crowds, which shows that there is a great appetite for peace on our planet. Pico, our one thing that seems to confuse people, I think, about the Dalai Lama is he's so happy in public, despite all the suffering of the people of Tibet, despite all the suffering in the world. It's almost like there's not enough outrage. How do you explain that? I was traveling with him in Japan two years ago, and we were, drive, we were riding in the bullet train from Nagoya to Yokohama, and by good fortune, a journalist came into our ca- carriage and asked that very question. He said, Your Holiness, you've seen 1.2 million of your people killed. You've been in exile for 50 years. Really, all you've witnessed is suffering, and yet you're most famous for your smile. How is that? And instantly, without hesitation, the Dalai Lama said, My profession. And I, I'm not sure exactly what he meant by that. There are many, many ways of, of, of taking it. But I think it may have partly to do with that monasticism, with his sense, unbreakable, that in the long term, things will work out for the better, that uh, for all the three steps backwards and the zigzags along the path, ultimately, each human is slowly moving towards a clearer understanding uh, of reality. And whenever I ask him about the Tibetan situation, he always says, short term, no hope, long term, Definitely, there'll, there'll be a resolution. And I think by thinking in terms of centuries, uh, he's not prey to the moment-by-moment convulsions that are more and more um, our masters because I think the world has accelerated and we're living in the midst of this 24-7 news cycle. And so we're almost permanently riding a, a roller coaster. And he's like a monk sitting next to the roller coaster, seeing things in a much against a much wider horizon and in a much larger context. And of course... As your question implies, it's difficult for his people, uh, though they are Buddhist, to see things in terms of centuries. And they do say, well, we, we understand that that's how a Dalai Lama thinks of things, but we want a better life for our children. And he has to say, well, that's not guaranteed. But in, in the long run, what you do in the short term has consequences. So please be careful what you do every day of your life. And finally, the world as a whole and the human family will reap the benefits of that. journalist Pico Iyer, and before that, Dr. Robert Thurman, commenting on the life and times and lessons of the 14th Dalai Lama. Another of our recent guests, international water negotiator Aaron Wolf, told us that he had borrowed techniques from Buddhism and other spiritual traditions to help people settle regional disputes over water resources. The Oregon State University professor recalled one Buddhist negotiator who taught him a lot. The most profound thing is is how to be really present in a room. People who've talked to uh, Buddhist monks or or people with uh, deep uh, meditative training, uh, when you talk to somebody like that, you really feel their presence. They listen in a way that I can't remember being listened to before. You really feel like you're absolutely at the center of the universe. And that practice of deep presence, of deep, transformative listening, uh, I think was the most important uh, skill that I, I learned uh, first from him and then from, from others. 
So that enabled you, I imagine, to think about how you can do more with conflict resolution. I think those are those are the the kinds of skills that uh, that the spiritual community offers. How to use silence in a in a productive and a, a useful way. Uh, we're not trained in that very well. We're uh, in the rest of the world. They joke about Americans. The, the joke is uh, to an American, what's the opposite of speaking? And the answer is waiting to speak. And mm-hmm. and you notice when you listen to when you when you watch people in conversation, that's what they're doing. Their whole body language, their whole uh, energy is is waiting to jump into the into the conversation. But we also learn from spiritual traditions around the world this understanding that kind of anger and and force is generally a shield for vulnerability. And you can't get to the vulnerability until you offer the silence and the space and the, and the listening to allow the anger to uh, spend itself, to dissipate. Uh, and it's only being able to share the vulnerability where you can have a much more productive dialogue. People do different things. In, in India, for example, sometimes there will be a seat with sandals on the seat. This represents the god Hanuman. Uh, who had, at one point left his sandals behind to to represent him? Uh, what this does is is remind people for whom this is important that a god or God is in the room. Uh, people handle themselves uh, very very differently. Something as simple, Carol, as as when we're doing the opening introductions. Uh, generally, again, in the West, we're taught we introduce ourselves in hierarchy where we're from, where our degree's from, what technical training we have. We put ourselves linearly up or down on a hierarchy. Uh, and something as simple as w- introducing a group one by one, tell us your name and a story about your relationship with water, or how you got into water, or a story about the watershed where you grew up. Something as simple as that, by the time we've gone around the room, rather than putting ourselves in a linear hierarchy, we've rather crafted, started to craft a community where our shared values are starting to become apparent, or our shared histories, or, or the things that we value together uh, are now more apparent on the table. International water negotiator Aaron Wolf, who also said that over hundreds of years there have been very few wars over water resources. In fact, that regions in conflict often find reason to cooperate over sharing water especially when prompted by good conflict resolution techniques. Ahead, more lessons in peace from the annual Rainbow Gathering, from another former Nobel Peace Prize winner, and from international travel. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. More after this break.
This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from the radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and here's a lively exchange I had with 87-year-old Dr. Bernard Laun, who helped start Physicians for Social Responsibility in the 1960s, and in 1985 shared a Nobel Peace Prize for his work with international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war. So, for example, given the chance, what would you say to a gathering of, quote, average Americans who believe in the need for a strong defense, who believe in threats from terrorists or other nuclear powers, to get them instead to insist that their government dismantle its arsenal and stop developing new weapons? Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have conflated so many issues that it makes no sense. No intelligent answer is possible. Because... You say defense and terrorism and military and weapons. We are building, well, let me take one at a time. We are building weapons now to fight the Cold War with the Russians. A B-1 bomber, what value has it got against terrorists? You know what a B-1 bomber costs? More than a billion. You know what that means? 750,000 Pell Grants for young people, which is more important for the safety defense security of the United States to be able to compete in the global market by having intelligent young people who have a college education. So that's one as regard weapons. Defense is good, but do we have to spend a trillion dollars on it? Do we? Why don't you analyze that? What I was describing was sort of a mindset, uh, which I think you can accept is something that's adopted by a large percentage of Americans. I would say to them, and I believe in their intelligence, and I believe in their good sense, and I believe that they want to live a good life and bequeath a good life, that your children's education is more important for the safety and security of the United States. Furthermore, terrorists are not something you fight with the military. The British did not bomb Belfast to get rid of the IRA. The Germans didn't bomb the minor brigade in Munich to get rid of their terrorists. We are the first one who begin to bomb people to get rid of terrorists. That's insane. That's a, the military should be out of it, totally. Terrorists are a police action. You require intelligence. You require international cooperation. You require the study of the basis for terrorism. Why is it developed now? Why didn't it exist 50 years ago? Why is it picking on the United States? What are the issues? I'm a doctor. What do I do as a doctor? Do I go in and cut off a limb? Do I amputate? Or do I make an analysis of why is his arm blue now? Oh, he has a blocked artery. Okay, we'll free it up. And, and we go in immediately, not with a scalpel, but with an axe. Does that make sense? Dr. Lowne, you do end your memoir on an optimistic note. So where do you actually see encouraging signs today? I see encouraging signs in the fact that what I learned from our experience. Here I'm a, a doctor and a small little human being in, a, in Newton, Massachusetts. And we were able to start a movement with others and affect history. That gives me enormous hope and a surge of optimism. Secondly, I, whenever I speak to people, it's very easy to persuade them on the logic and the necessity uh, of what we're trying to do. 
Look, if we merely took two months of our military budget and gave it to clean up the global water supply, we'd reduce disease by 80% in the world. Where are our priorities? And people can be persuaded. But it can be done. It must be done. We have no choice. 1985 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Bernard Laun of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. Travel writer Rick Steves told Suzanne Kreider of his idea about how Americans can reduce the threat of terrorism. Save some money, travel overseas, get into the streets, and meet our fellow citizens on the planet. Well, there's a lot of fear on this planet, and I really find uh, the flip side of fear is understanding. And when we travel, we overcome a lot of our fears and, and, uh, and outlooks that are shaped by, I think, propaganda. And at the same time, we help overcome the fear of other people who are afraid of us because of propaganda in their societies. And I find that the, the big common denominator here is people. If people can just get together, we realize that we all have different dreams and uh, we all find different truths to be self-evident and God-given. And it just makes sense to give everybody a little wiggle room. I was in Iran a year ago, and a lot of people said, oh, you're going to Iran. That must be so scary. And yeah, I was a little scared. In fact, we came within uh, just uh, inches of deciding to leave our big, expensive TV camera in Athens and flying in with our little, tiny sneak camera, thinking, well, people, when they know we're an American film crew on the streets of Tehran, they're going to be throwing stones at us. But uh, we got there. Thank goodness we kept our big camera, and I've never been received so warmly. I was stuck in a traffic jam in Tehran, and and uh, the man in the next car, I remember he motioned to my driver, roll down your window. He handed over a bouquet of flowers, and he said, give this to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. Uh, you know, <laughs> there, there's no grounds for fear for an individual walking the streets of Iran. And me, this big proponent of don't be afraid, I was afraid. So it's just a, a normal inclination when you go to places that you've read about uh, from, I think, bad media, you, um, you develop fears. And a cool thing about travel is you overcome those fears. How do you do that? Well, by meeting people. I mean, I met those people in Iran. A woman walked across the street to me and she pounded her finger on my chest and she said, I want you to go home and tell the truth. We're strong, we're united, and we don't want our children to be raised like Britney Spears. Mm. Ooh, I thought, she's really, a f she's motivated by fear and love, just like a lot of Americans. You know, she's afraid her kid will grow up to be a, uh, if America values crept into their society, she'd lose her child. That child would become a boy toy or a sex, a drug addict or a crass materialist. And she's got her own family values that she's afraid of. You know, later on, I was in a tra another traffic jam in Tehran. It's a city of 14 million people. There's a lot of traffic jams. We we're just stuck in this traffic jam, and suddenly my driver just blurted out, death to traffic. <laughs> and here I am under a sign that says death to America, and my driver is saying death to traffic. And I asked him, what's going on? I thought it was death to America or death to Israel. He said, no, in Iran, whenever something's frustrating in us and just out of our control, we say death to that. So the death to traffic. Right now he's probably saying death to election fraud or death to Ahmadinejad. Um, so, you know, we can take these things in, in bumper sticker kind of um, uh, intelligence and think, oh, they all want to kill Americans. Or we can realize that um, they're frustrated and the way they say damn is by saying death to. We say damn this and damn that. Damn those teenagers. Damn those uh, construction people. Well, what are you saying? You want them to die and burn in hell for an eternity? No, it's just after midnight. Turn the music down. Damn those teenagers. Um, so they say death too. If that's all you know about Iran is they say death to America, you are a sorry excuse for a political analyst. It's much more complicated than that. And unfortunately, most Americans don't know much about Iran that they didn't learn from Ted Koppel. And... Uh, 
consequently, we've got 70 million people that we're dealing with here in quite an interesting struggle. Uh, nobody would, uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody supporting the policies of Ahmadinejad. But remember, what he's doing, he got elected by about 51%, and he needs to shore up his political base. And he, when he says something like the Holocaust never happened or that we can rub Israel out or we can uh, take care of America, he's not talking to us. He's talking to his political base. He's talking to the less educated, small-town, fundamentalist, scared parents motivated by fear and love. And in our society, we've got small-town, less educated, fundamentalist parents that are motivated by the same thing, fear and love. Good people don't have a very broad perspective taken advantage of by their government. Public radio and TV travel host Rick Steves, who in 2009 also published a book called Travel as a Political Act. In Albuquerque, New Mexico, Sarah Wilkinson also believes that getting to know people across the globe can lead to peace. But since school children can't always visit their young counterparts around the world, she set up an organization that helps youngsters connect as pen pals, or peace pals as she calls them handwriting letters to one another to learn what they have in common and to understand each other's differences. This one is from Ghana. It's written by a 13-year-old girl. And she begins by saying, Dear friend. So she's written this letter, um, not yet knowing who her peace pal will be. It's kind of a letter of request for a peace pal. Dear friend, Fasila Abukari is my name. I am a girl of 14 years old, and I am a peace club member. I live in Gumbehini in Tamale, northern Ghana, and I'm completing junior high school. I would love to have a pen pal from America, a girl. I love and belong to many people, and I like sharing, caring, and being gentle. By choosing to be gentle, I let go of anger and violence and thus improve my relationships. So this we will then match with a girl of the same age here in the United States, who, and they will begin a writing friendship. There was one class in particular... I was presenting uh, to a group of fourth and fifth graders. The teacher introduced me and said, we're going to write letters today. The overall reaction of the kids was groaning. They're like, letters? We don't know how to write letters. We don't like writing letters. Letters? So in that case, I actually had some of these um, introductory letters that had been been written from another country overseas requesting a peace pill. And I was able to hand them out to the students. And in advance, I had looked at the student list and figured out which ones would go to which students. So within about, I'm not kidding, three minutes, I handed out these letters from another country. And I wish we could have been videotaping it because the transformation that occurred when these kids held these letters in their hands and started looking down at the written words, suddenly the same kids that were grousing about it a few minutes before were saying to the kid next to him, dude, check it out. Look what my peace pal wrote. And then a couple of them came up to me, and they had this kind of look of awe in their face, holding this letter saying, you mean this letter came from that country? I mean, it it still gives me goosebumps. I mean, it was a magical experience, and suddenly this is the best part. I turned around, and several of the kids had already sat down with a piece of paper and a pen and wanted to write their letter. No one had asked them to write their letter. They wanted to write their letter. The next thing they're asking is, well, where's the map? I want to see where this is. And wait, where's the dictionary? I want to spell this word so that my peace pal can understand. So it's a very exciting process that happens when kids get these letters. What's the background of of peace pal? Where did the idea emerge from? Well, it first began in about 2006, I would say. 
number one, I was noticing that conflict continued to show up in my life despite my desire and intention for harmony and peace. And that was really disturbing to me. And so I really started to reflect on the genesis of conflict in myself and in my life. And at the same time, I was volunteering at my son's school, which is an element, was an elementary school. And I started to notice how early conflict begins even with children. Let's say, for example, just the tendency to want to blame someone else for an experience that we're having rather than taking responsibility for perhaps our part in it. So these ideas were all kind of settling in there. And at this school, I also began to notice that kids had a real curiosity for what life would be like for someone their age in another country, but they had very little real information about it. There was kind of frozen information in print, which wasn't really alive for them. But I also saw at the same time their desire to really know more about kids in other countries. And I also noticed that kids listened to each other a whole lot more than they listened to adults. So all of these things began to swirl around inside of me. Well, what about if I figured out a way to connect kids in the United States directly with kids their age in other countries? So number one, they could actually begin to have a, a, an alive experience of what life is like for kids their age in other places in the world, and then gradually begin a conversation about how to create peace in their lives um, what would that be like? So I slowly began in 2007 to start the program. That's Sarah Wilkinson, director of Project Peace Pal. We'll close our program today with the sounds our microphone captured at the 2009 Rainbow Gathering near Cuba, New Mexico. Each year, thousands camp out on a different area of U.S. Forest Service land around the July 4th weekend, creating a temporary intentional community, celebrating cooperation, praying for peace, then having children parade to wrap up the festivities. <laughs> there are children everywhere. Our Suzanne Kreider was there watching the human spirit overcome a rain shower. Um, balloon hats. <laughs> Almost like Halloween costumes. Clowns, spooks, lots of painted faces. Butterfly wings. So the kitty parade is coming through a break in the circle. The kids are getting a really big round of applause. There are very few umbrellas out here, guys. It's mostly just people getting wet. Oh, gosh, I just feel so happy. All the jubilation for children. How often do we see that? <laughs> What's your full name? Joshua David Marks. Where do you live, Joshua? Oregon. Great. Um, how many gatherings have you been to? I don't know. How many? Five. Five. That's awesome. Um, why do you keep coming back? It's fun. What's the most fun about it? The parade. What do you like about the parade? It's a lot of people, and they're all happy. So my show is about peace. What do you learn about peace from the Rainbow Gatherings? That you don't need to judge, and everybody can be family. Anything else you want to tell our listeners about what really happens here and why it's important? No, it's just really fun, and there's a lot of people, and then everybody loves each other, and we're all family. Thanks very much. Wow, that was like a really unusually <laughs> loving child. <laughs>
My name is Jennifer Simpson. Our show is about making peace. What do you expect to learn or take away about peacemaking from the gathering? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, well, one thing I've already kind of taken away is that peace really is a choice. I mean, it's a choice we make every single day in every interaction. You know, when um, I was up here earlier, uh, about 10 days ago, and um, I know there was like a domestic disturbance, <laughs> for lack of a better... <laughs> and the way they dealt with it here was, you know, instead of like hauling off somebody and arresting them and throwing them in jail, they, you know, they surrounded them and omed and talked them down, basically, rather than being confrontational. It's more of like a, how can we heal this problem? And I don't know if that's always going to work. <laughs> it would be nice to think it would. And, um... I also I also really enjoyed hearing um, Garrick Beck speak at the town meeting when he said that um, you know we come up here and pray for peace and and then he kind of jokingly said it hasn't worked yet but but we're hopeful <laughs> and and I think you know I think that's the other thing to take away from this about peace you know okay probably on the fifth of July the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan will not be over I'm not naive but it can't hurt. <laughs> And to have 10,000 people come together and to try and manifest that kind of intention, I think it's pretty powerful. I mean, you know, one small step can change the world, right? It's gotten kind of chilly, and um, I'm a bit wet. I'm going to head back up the hill and head out. So, wow, quite a journey, uh, Suzanne, at the 2009 Rainbow Gathering. How did you feel coming out of the whole thing? This experience truly changed me. Hmm. The way I think about people who are part of the hippie movement has changed, and the way I interact with people has completely changed. I understand now. I'm not saying that the gathering is a panacea. I'm not saying that there aren't problems with it. But I have to just say that they are people who are trying to make peace. They're trying to learn how do people live together? How do people treat the earth in a peaceful way? And I have to give them a lot of credit for trying. And we'll continue to try ourselves here at Peace Talks Radio. You can hear the entire programs from which all the excerpts on today's show were drawn. Click on 2009 episodes online at peacetalksradio.com. Also there, you can hear all the shows in our series dating back to 2003. Sign up for a free monthly newsletter, a free podcast, and find out how your tax-deductible contribution can truly help to keep this forum for talk about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution stay on the air and online, all at peacetalksradio.com. The program is produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated, with support from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the Peace Tales CD Project at peacetales.org, KUNM at the University of New Mexico, and contributions from listeners like you. My most excellent co-hosts are Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.